Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In this episode, we're delving into the world of theatre and how one company has used its theatrical base to venture into the arena of folklore-themed podcasting. Odyssey Theatre is Ottawa's premier professional open-air theatre and its only masked physical theatre. They've been delighting audiences with award-winning productions for 36 years. Odyssey's mission is to inspire diverse audiences with visceral theatre that touches hearts and sparks creativity and reflection about our world. They create theatre rooted in masked performance and commedia dell'arte, infused with other physical arts including puppetry, clown, buffoon and dance theatre. Their art transports audiences to imaginative worlds, providing a lens through which to see our own world. They explore meaningful themes through satire, myth and folktale, telling powerful stories that explore and celebrate the human spirit. Odyssey are also responsible for creating the Other Path podcast. In this series, five writers have created original audio dramas inspired by folktales, but set in our current world. They've used these ancient tales to speak imaginatively about issues we face today, in a series filled with magic, mystery and danger. Plays range from haunting dramas to macabre comedies. In each story, people desperate to fulfil desires choose a path that leads them to clash with magical forces. These forces tempt with promises of good fortune but lead to danger. Whatever fate has in store, the other path reveals the unexpected. Our theatre and film correspondent Tracy Nicholas caught up with some of the members of Odyssey Theatre recently to talk about their work. Firstly, we'll hear her conversation with creator and director Laurie Stephen about Odyssey Theatre itself, and then that's followed by Marty Chan and Dan Peretti focusing on the podcast. I'm here today with Laurie Stevens, and Laurie is the creator and director of the new folklore-inspired podcast series The Other Path. She's the founder and artistic director of Odyssey Theatre, a professional theatre in Ottawa, Canada. An award-winning theatre writer and director, she often adapts folklore and myth for adult audiences. The Other Path is Odyssey's first foray into the world of audio drama. So hello, Laurie. Hi. Uh, Thank you for for being here with us. Um, So I want to talk about both the the theater and the podcast, but first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, your experience, and and what your involvement is with the theater and the podcast? Well, I'm the founder and artistic director of Odyssey Theater, which is a theater in Ottawa. And the theater does outdoor summer productions, plus we do training, new play development, and community-engaged arts projects. Now, we have a very specific focus, and that focus is on masked performance. And so that's my background, and I've kind of grown through the theater until it came to the pandemic. And then we launched a series of digital programs. And I'm the series creator and director of The Other Path. 
Um, so yeah, once once you go to the the podcast format, the masks really <laughs> aren't part of it anymore. <laughs> well, I always think of masks like a gateway to the imagination. Um, they take us into a kind of alternate world, a heightened world, and and the way you stage things with masks and movement, it invites the audience to release their imaginations. Mm-hmm. So. So even though it seems like completely not related, moving into audio drama was like moving into an imaginative wild, wild west. You can be on the moon or you can be at the bottom of the sea and you can tell stories in the heightened world that you imagine and and that the audience participates in that creation. Mm -hmm. Um, So... When you, you said during the pandemic is when you were inspired to do the other path. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, from the moment of hey you know we've got to do something we can't do the live performance we're in lockdown to the, the the journey that you took to get to actually launching the podcast. <laughs> well, actually, the whole journey started. Pre-pandemic, okay. it started around 2015 when my goddaughter, when my goddaughter came and uh, stayed with me for a period of time. And she's a theater student, but she introduced me to a world of vlogs, web series, podcasts, all the kind of digital media entertainment forms that she was interested in. And I was really fascinated. I was fascinated by the fact that she would travel five hours to see one of her digital stars live Mm. and pay extraordinary uh, amounts of money to do so. And I started to see, not just through her, but through her eyes and through the, the eyes of younger potential audiences, the importance of digital programming and the need for digital programming and live programming to work together. Okay. So, I started at that time to come up with ideas of things that I would like to do that could be a great complement to what we do at Odyssey, training things, new play development processes, readings. Um, and uh, I just had no mon- money and no time to do anything about it at that time. So when the pandemic hit, I really needed to find a way to keep artists working. It was a very bad time for artists. And I wanted to keep Odyssey connected to audiences. So I had that lack of digital programs ready to go. And I just launched into it. And we started training and online new play workshops and readings by Zoom. And then I decided to take the the next step. And I didn't think it was so big a step as it turned out to be. But I thought, okay, now's the time to do the podcast series. And that's kind of how it came to be launched. Um, and we started work on it during the pandemic. Okay. Um, so when when you said it, you thought it wasn't going to be as big of a step as it was. Um, what were some of the things that were unexpected for you as as you, you know, started getting it up and running? Well, I mean, certainly in my mind, it was a six-month project. And it turned out to be two years working six days a week full time. And <laughs> and not just me, there were 40 other people involved in this project along the way. I, I think one of the big mistakes I made in my mind was thinking, well, you know, audio drama, you're not going to have 
sets, lighting, costumes, props, staging, choreography. But actually, it turns out that you have all of those things. You just have to create it through sound. You have to create a 3D effect. Mm -hmm. And you create that 3D effect by all the manipulation that actors do with the microphone, by stereo workings of the sound designer. And I had to stage the whole thing in my brain. Okay. And then translate it into the world of sound so that if I wanted to bring people closer, they had to move closer to their microphones and we had to have footsteps bringing them in. And, and of course, you can't just think, you can't just think, oh, it, it, in theater, you just say, okay, make an entrance and, and, and you're angry and do this. But in, in the world of audio drama, you have to say what kind of shoes the character is wearing, what they're walking on, what kind of sound that makes, how fast it is, how many steps you take. So there was a whole, whole realm of things in the world of sound and music. Uh, that required a, a, a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. And it was also, I mean, the sound and music happens after the recording ses session. But all this has to start to work in uh, the very writing of the scripts mm -hmm. and the directing of the script. So, it, you know, everything was learned from the ground up in terms of writing, dramaturgy, directing, and creating sound and music. So um, it, it, you direct all of them, right? All I did. Okay. Um, and how do you select your writers? Well, I was excited by the opportunity that this... Normally, we work with playwrights or people that create in the kind style of theater that we we do. Um, and I thought this was an opportunity to bring together folklorists, uh, fantasy fiction writers, and dramatists, all of whom would have an interest, I said to myself in my imagination, all of whom would have an interest in folklore and, and doing something interesting with that. And I thought there could be a kind of synergy if I would learn something and we would take the work of the theater company forward. So I began with that thought, and then I started reading madly, and I approached writers from whichever discipline they came from because they'd written something that really moved me. Okay. And, uh, yeah. When you were looking at different pieces that you were considering, um, and I, I, I'm interested in kind of where that intersection between what you had been doing with the, the Commedia dell'arte and the, the folklore. Um, and, and I'd love to hear your take on where you think that those kinds of stories overlap. Well, I guess it goes way back to the beginning of the theater. Um, at, at the beginning, I wanted to do masked performance, and I started being inspired by the Italian Commedia dell'arte, which is um, um, a Renaissance form of theater where actors wore masks, they played stock characters, and they improvised and ultimately scripted uh, these satirical comedies that were full of uh, physicality. Um, uh, but I quickly came across a writer named Carlo Gozzi, an 18th century Italian 
writer who wrote with Comedia and Italian folktales. And he had a, a little collection of works like this that were immensely popular and popular with adults. And I was interested in folktales. <laughs> and here he had combined the two things together. And what he did was he would tell the folktale and the folktale... Um, it's the heroes and the idealistic heroes who would carry the weight of the drama of the folktale, taken very seriously, most often. And the comedic characters were servants or, or other hangers on in that world. And they're kind of like us. <laughs> they're, they have low ideals. They are kind of wretched, self-serving, um, uh, characters who, who are, um, have a subplot of their own, a comic subplot to the more serious plot. And they're a foil to the nobility of the characters that carry the weight of the, of the, um, folktale. So I was very intrigued by that. I directed Gotzi pieces. Then we created our own original pieces based on folktales I was interested in. And making them relevant for adult audiences. By that time, I was interested in Marie-Louise von Franz and her interpretations of her Jungian interpretations of fairy tales. So I was kind of weaving that into the work. And then the, my interest in folk tales and myths and making them accessible for adult audiences. Because as you know, we often think of, um, folktales as kids stuff right um and my interest kind of advanced and my interest in international folktales um was heightened and i started collaborating with choreographers from different mass theater traditions including peking opera and indonesian wayang wong and we would take a folktale from somewhere in the world and combine a masked theater approach with elements of uh, the traditions that they would bring with us to to come up with the staging. So that's the, been one of the journeys of the theater. And we still do straight comedia and comedia satires, but we also have this other vein of work that we, we do that's been very important mm -hmm. to us. So <clears throat> when when you started doing the the podcast and you were developing the the stories um did you do you, do you think of them as adaptations of traditional folk tales do you think of them as original works inspired by traditional folk tales or just original works or is it a combination depending mm. on the episode it's a combination i would say and and really i I chose the writers, but I encouraged them to choose a folktale that they would be inspired by. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and in each case, something a little different happened with each of the writers. They took a folktale and got inspired by it. And in the process of creating a contemporary work, um, some went much further afield from the original. And some stayed a little bit closer to it. In all of the cases, there, there is, it's not just a retelling of the story. It is a new work, but you can feel the, the original folktale at work beneath it. 
Got it. Um, so let's talk a little bit. You mentioned that they're contemporary. You've set all of the stories in more or less the present and kind of some sort of version of this world. It's not a fantasy world where magic necessarily exists or something like that. Why did you make that choice? Um, this is a kind of step for the theater company because when we have done folk tales in the past, we've made them accessible and we've in, we've made them accessible for a contemporary audience. We've kind of modernized the characters, but we've kept the fantasy world of the original story somewhat intact. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this is a time to go for broke. Let's all, (laughs) that was something I said to the writers. Can you take the folktale and can you tell tell us the story that's set now um and so part of that is curiosity and finding out what we could do and what would happen and also i think that if you set things now it's it's much harder for an audience to distance themselves from it there's a there's a lovely old uh, folktale um called the fisherman and his wife and it's a very simple one, but it's a fisherman and his wife who meet a magic flounder. And uh, the wife would like to use the newfound association with the flounder to get ahead. So uh, she wants to move from her little hut to a nice cottage and then to a palace and then become, she herself would like to become king and emperor Pope and ultimately God. <laughs> and it, 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 this is a wonderful story. Now she does end up back in her, well, what's called a piss pot. She ends up back in her little shack at the end. Now, this is a story we can say, oh, well, you know, these fishermen's wives and their, and their nonsensical desires, that, that's, that's bound to happen to them. Whereas the minute you put it into a contemporary world, Mm-hmm. suddenly you have to get down to the core of what that's really about. And there is a, a, a hunger for more that sets in with this poor fisherman's wife. And, and nothing is ever enough. And you start thinking about it in a contemporary world. You start thinking about it in yourself. It starts to make you a little bit uneasy. Mm-hmm. Because it can, it can, it can be that one potato chip that leads you to devour the whole bag and you didn't intend to. It can be that, uh, for workaholics, it can be, you'll just get through this one project with this little pile of tasks and then you'll enjoy a good life. Well, you get through that pile of tasks and poof, another one springs up and you defer enjoying the better life. So all of a sudden you put it in a contemporary world and you're forced to wrestle with it. Well, in this case, writers are forced to wrestle with it in themselves and in our world and find out what the core is that's still something hooked those writers into the particular tale. And what was that and how would they get that out? Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's an interesting process for the writers and a dynamic process or a dynamic experience for a listener mm-hmm. when it's in a contemporary world. Yeah, when, as you were talking, it, I was thinking about, you know, the, the kind of people who, um, you know, Bill Gates or, you know, some people who have had, you know, astronomical rises and how when one of them falls, we, we kind of take 
a little bit of delight in it and say, well, I, I would have never been that greedy. I would have, you know, I would have done good things with my money. And so, but I think that the reason, one of the reasons we think that is because we're a little bit worried that maybe we wouldn't, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and so I think that that, and, and that exactly just you talking about it brought me into the present. So I, and I started thinking, Hmm, I, you know, I, I, now I can see where, it's a little bit easier to listen about the fisherman's wife. <laughs> Can you talk, you talked about the process of the writers and how they kind of got to different spots, but um, can you just walk us through a little bit about what the, the process of doing the whole show is, how, how you go through it, rehearsal, and, and, and you said the sound comes later. Yes, uh, I, I mean, and that's a complete flip from the theater. That was one of the most challenging things. Mm -hmm. um, it, well, it started, once I got the writers started, the writers then did, I had, this was another area of <laughs> underestimation of the amount of work. I said, oh, I think it'll be about three drafts. Each of the writers did a treatment and six to eight drafts of their work. So that took us over the course of, uh, pretty much of a year. And during that time, I cast, uh, and I cast for the roles in all five plays. Um, and so I had a, an ensemble of 15 professional actors. Some were in one piece, some were in several pieces. And during the course of that year of writing, there were two two day workshops for each of the five plays. Um, and that was at some point that was time for the writer to hear the work and then go away and revise. Mm -hmm. Then we had a two-day rehearsal. Most of this was done entirely online by Zoom. Okay. We had um, a two-day rehearsal. And then we had one intense day for each of the pieces in studio recording. And these plays are... 35 to 45 minutes. And that took a full intense day of doing, you're in a recording studio and the actors are asked, I am asking the actors to do a reading of the play and then of scenes and then of scenes again and parts of scenes again and lines again. And at the end of that day, you have to compile the, the best takes of each little bit and put it together. Um, and then that's where the sound designer comes in. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to work with a really wonderful designer named Damien Kearns and a, a wonderful and patient designer. Now, in theater, the sound and music gets created. It's You start that creative process before rehearsals begin and the sound and music reach perfection with, or as close as they ever get to perfection, but they reach their... Um, form during the rehearsal period so that it's integrated with the actor's performances. Mm -hmm. In this case, sound and music designers say, no, 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 we don't start work till we've got the recording in front of us. So I had to do a lot of thinking about and researching and understanding how sound and music would come into play to tell the story. Uh -huh. um, I uh, worked with writers to get that written into the script. And then in the actual recording process, I would have to be saying things like, okay, now there's a big explosion. So your line now comes out of the sense that there was a big explosion. 
And then you sit down with the um, music uh, designer and sound designer afterwards and you listen to the recording and you lay in music and sound. And sound is um, complex. It's soundscapes that create the space, sound effects for every particular movement or special effects. And the sounds that create a three-dimensional picture of the space for the listener. Um, so that took about six months working with um, those guys. Now, was the sound designer the, the technician that actually was creating the sounds as well? Uh, he had somebody work with him who created, uh, say, a first draft, but he did all the fine tuning and the kind of major sound effects, whether it was a vocal treatment for an ogre or um, <laughs> he recorded things. Um, there's a little part in Hart's Home where um, one of the characters is telling the story about how the Tiglath, the magical people, came to this island. And their folktale is that a giant waded through the ocean towing the Tiglath in cockleshell boats. So I said to him, can we please have a a uh, giant wading through the ocean and pulling the Tiglath and Cockleshell boats. Uh, a little bit of that sound under that story. And so he did things wading in his bathtub and rattling teacups and then magic work on his mysterious soundboard and created this little bit of a sound that goes under that. That's amazing. I love that. Um, and and it's it's funny because as we were talking earlier about, you know, things being kind of more or less set in this world and, and it, where, you know, where we live in a contemporary setting, I love that you were inspired by walking around your neighborhood and sort of seeing where sort of those in between those liminal places where magic might occur. Um, and so what, what do you think that as you were, what, what can you offer advice to people to find magic around them? Well, I think that's a little bit what the story is about and also why it's set, the, the series is about and also why it's set in a contemporary world. Um, it's set so that people start in the real world and then they discover pockets of magic or hidden mythical creatures that impact their journey. And I, I think we get so ground down by, by life and having to be practical and doing the next thing that we sometimes need to stop and let our imaginations soar. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, one of the great gifts of folktales and of, of finding that spirit of a folktale in our contemporary world um, is that it makes you stop and it reactivates your imagination. You start thinking, this is a world that could be inhabited by mysteries. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had mysteries for a long time, you know? So, um, so yes, uh, when I kicked off the, my work on the series, I did two things. One is I wandered around listening. I, I listened to, I listened to the world. Um, I listened to the sound of cars, what it sounds like when you're inside a car, what it sounds like when you turn on the engine, what it's like in the forest in daytime or at nighttime. 
And the other thing I did was I just wandered around looking for places that struck me like there could they could be a portal to a magical world and what that would be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a really fun way to see the world. That it, it sounds really fun. And I, I think that all too often when we're walking around or driving in our cars, there's music playing or podcasts going and, and you don't listen to everything that's happening around you. We just, we stay very isolated and don't connect with nature, with other people. We just, you know, we've got our earbuds in and we, we keep going. And so being able to remember that kind of connection and sense of wonder is, is really wonderful. It's, it's a, a great uh, thing to give to people. Um, so can you tell, talk a little bit about, it, it looks like it's not just the podcast that you're putting out. It, it seems like there are lots of different events. You've kind of built um, a, a little world around the podcast. So can you talk about the other events that you have going besides just the releases of the episodes? We wanted to make it a kind of richer experience for people who were delving into it. So I asked the writers if they would be willing to do an interview about their process. So we videotaped an interview for each of the writers. And I asked them to write, if they would, a, a little uh, a little article about what inspired them in their original folktales. Uh, I've been writing a blog just of my, you know, musings about my experience over this course of this uh, podcast series. And um, Ev, our um, social media director, she's come up with some really fun ideas on social media. For each of the series, she's created a playlist of um, songs and music inspired by the episode that people can listen to. Fun. And uh, she does a little feature creature introducing people to um, mythical creatures they might not otherwise know. And she's given them a little inside look at the actors behind the voices in the podcast series. That's when I heard footsteps. I turned and there he was. Green skin, like rotting flesh. Eyes like saucers, frog's eyes, on top of his head. The feathers stuck up from his back, shimmering blue and green. I hadn't believed, but now I had no choice. He raised a spiked club, and startled as I was, I managed to back out of the way of his swing. He might have hit me with a second swing if I hadn't had the luck to trip and fall flat on my back. Swung a third time. I scrambled away. The club slammed on the ground. Then another stroke of luck saved me. Weakened by the ogre's blow, the ledge between us slid down the side of the mountain and took me with it. Get back here. You're supposed to be my dinner. I landed on a ledge not far down, but far enough he couldn't see me in the twilight. Not wanting to risk climbing in the darkness, I stayed put. That night, I dreamt of Anna boiling cabbages in a cave while the ogre leered at her. So I'm Marty Chan, and I am a playwright, a television screenwriter, kids author, 
and a guy with a very short attention span. So I, I started off working in theater, writing plays for adults. Uh, the, the play that most people in Canada would know me for is a cross-cultural comedy called Mom, Dad, I'm Living with a White Girl, uh, which was inspired by my personal experience and my mom's worst nightmare when I decided to move in. <laughs> with my girlfriend who was not Chinese. And that that's a different story. I won't share that with you now. Uh, but uh, uh, since uh, working on a theater, uh, probably uh, about 15, 16 years ago, I made a transition into writing books for kids. Uh, and um, one of the things that I loved was doing school presentations and going into schools and talking about literacy and getting kids excited about reading. Uh, but I was writing books for slightly older kids, but schools would want me to come in and talk to their younger students, you know, kindergarten, grade one, grade two. And uh, the kinds of stories I was telling the older kids was not working for the younger kids. So I started researching and, and doing uh, folk tales for the kids. And um, I, I loved sort of going through and finding Chinese folk tales to share with the kids. And so I had sort of half a foot in that, that sort of world of thinking about uh, folk tales. And then uh, out of the blue, uh, Laurie Stevens at Odyssey Theatre gave me a shout and said, hey, I I'm a big fan of one of your plays. And, and it was a play called The Forbidden Phoenix, which was a hybrid of um, North American musical theatre and Chinese opera. And the play sort of centered around the Monkey King, which is a classic uh, trickster figure in Chinese folklore. Basically, the Monkey King is a trickster, kind of like um, coyote uh, in indigenous culture. Uh, and um, I, I sort of captured the story of the Monkey King and uh, adapted it into this this sort of weird Frankenstein of a play uh, that was produced in Edmonton. And it uh, went on a bit of a tour across Canada. And uh, Laurie had read the script and said, you know, this this guy likes to smash things together like different genres. Uh, he might be the right fit for the other path. And she approached me and said, would you be interested in taking an, a classic or not so known folktale and adapting it into a radio play for a contemporary audience? And, and of course, any time I have a chance to try something different and new, I always say yes. So I, I jumped onto the project with both feet. Right. I'm, I'm Daniel Peretti. I, I'm a folklorist. I teach at Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I teach classes on things like um, urban legends and folklore and popular culture, uh, things like that. And I got involved in this project because Lori Stephen contacted our folklore department looking for suggestions of writers. And I talked to her briefly and gave her some, some of my thoughts on that and said, if you can't find anybody else, uh, I could possibly do it. Um, that was a while ago now, right? That was back in 2020, I think. And based on that, um, she contacted me a while later, and uh, I have a background in uh, film. So I had never done anything like this before, but I thought it was an interesting project to maybe work on over the summer at some time. Mm -hmm. I hadn't worked in audio drama at all, so that's that's how I got into this. I'd, I'd done a few films, um, nothing more recent than 2013. Um, but they, you know, they got some some short films and and one feature length film that got some decent reception at some festivals. So uh, I was always I've, I've always looked for reasons to get back into this kind of, of writing. Um, now I'd like to ask both of you 
to give a brief description of the podcast episode that you wrote so people can kind of get a feel for what the stories are like. Um, Dan, why don't you tell us what yours is? Sure. Mine is called The Feathered Ogre, and it's based on an old Italian folk tale collected in the 19th century. And this is a story in the version we've got for The Other Path. It's, a, it's about a, a woman named Lucy who's been away from her hometown for a long time and uh, has a dream about one of her old friends. And so she looks up this old friend and finds out that she's gone missing. And so she goes back to her hometown to try to see what happened. And that leads her to uh, the, the town sits on a river. And so there's the, the one side, which is which is basically just a modern little small town. And across the river, uh, it's it's more much more medieval. And so everyone tells her that that her friend has been kidnapped by a troll on the other side of the river. So the story is largely her crossing the river, uh, finding out what's going on over there and, and trying to track down her friend. Great. Got it. Thanks, Marty. Uh, I wrote Double Trouble, uh, and it was adapted from a Chinese folktale called The Magic Cask. And uh, the original folktale was about a, a young man who discovered a cask that had magical properties that whatever you put into the cask would multiply. And, uh, of course, if you've got something that can multiply, if you've ever bought uh, a lottery ticket, you know exactly what happens next, right? He decides that he's going to make some money out of this, uh, but greed gets in the way and things get out of hand. I think he has an argument with uh, a father-in-law who uh, promptly has a heart attack and dies and falls in the cask. And of course, his corpse multiplies. Uh, so so that was the uh, the source for uh, Double Trouble. Uh, Double Trouble set sort of in modern day times in, uh, in a in a place not not so different from my home province of Alberta, which has uh, sort of thrived and suffered uh, from boom and bust uh, in an oil economy, right? A resource economy where sometimes you have, you're flowing in money and other times you're, you're just broke. Uh, and so two, uh, two people who have enjoyed the ride of the oil boom are now sort of desperate for money as they've uh, the oil um, uh, oil prices have dropped. And so they come across a magic uh, bathtub that allows them to multiply whatever they put in it. And so I won't give away what happens after that, but let's just say uh, greed takes over and things go horribly wrong. You, Marty, you, you said you've, you've done this kind of thing before. You've done radio shows. Dan, you haven't. I'd like to hear about your, your process, um, not necessarily during production, but how you get you prepare yourself how you you go from the research to actually having the script uh well it, it always comes down to the source material right because I, I always believe that a good story uh, is a good story it doesn't matter if you tell the story if it's a story that's done through audio if it's something performed uh, on stage or in film or if it's a narrative uh in fiction you've got to start with a story that has some kind of universal appeal, something that people can uh, sort of have an, as an anchor point to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I think it's important just to develop some, some strong characters because the, there are guides through the story. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you try to figure out, you know, what, what from the folktale um, can resonate with people today. And I think that was one of the, probably for me, one of the big challenges was trying to figure out, okay, so this is a story that might have worked in a, in a different time and in a different country. 
but how does it resonate with today's audiences? And and for me, just finding out that whole sort of the through line of greed and what greed does to people, I, th- I found that that for me was the universal thread that I could pull on. And mm-hmm. from there, it just allowed me to develop more unique characters uh, and sort of play around with that whole notion of what people would do when they had the opportunity to make a lot of money without having to put in a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you start getting envious of the other person because maybe they are spending the money in a way that you don't want to or maybe the money that they're taking is money coming out of your pocket and so that just allowed me to update the folktale and sort of take it into something that I think a modern or a contemporary audience would be able to go oh I can see my friends or myself in that situation. And Daniel what about you what what was your process when you were kind of learning how to do this new format it was tough, I got to say. Uh, I started with this this idea of the, of the character, and I thought about I thought about the story symbolically because the feathered ogre is a fairly unique uh, type of character in folklore. Uh, ogres are really common, but their their defining characteristics are generally having lots of heads or they're gigantic or something like that. So at first, I started to think about what that might mean, uh, you know, symbolically, and then I decided that wasn't very interesting. So I I just started thinking about a character who's trying to find something that she's lost um, because the story to me was about that. Uh, the, the folk tale, like I said, it's from Italy and it's about uh, a king who's fallen sick and everyone knows that they have to cure him, but nobody knows how to do it. So finally he essentially asks his best friend to go on a quest to find the feathered ogre to get the, the feather that can cure him. And I thought that didn't work. Um, so I kind of completely changed the story. Uh, and so in order to do that, I looked up other stories that, uh, well, within, within the study of folklore, we have what we call tale types to help us categorize things cross-culturally. So I looked at a Norwegian version of the same story and a German version of what we would think of as this, the same tale type. And in Germany, it's not an ogre, it's the devil. And so that, that allowed me, I, I, to me, that was kind of liberating. I could do whatever I wanted to do with the story. And it was uh, the devil with the three golden hairs is what that story is called. Uh, and so it, it, it started out as this, this character just trying to kind of recapture something that she lost. Uh, and, and the name of the character is Lucy. And so she evolved as I was writing it. And that was always the driving force was what is she becoming? In the end, she turned into a sort of a detective and and that that kind of shaped the story more than anything else. Uh, her looking for clues instead of just kind of wandering around like a lot of fairy tale characters do. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating about the the tale types because I was wondering the the episodes that I am able to hear at the at the time of this taping that are actually published. Um, the first one was Baba Yaga, and I feel like. It, you guys were talking about specific tales that that you uh, you know modernized and and made your own, um, and I feel like Baba Yaga is a little more. There's there's lots of stories around her, and so just knowing that that you did go back and look at the the tale types, and there were more stories available to you, I, I think that that is closer in my mind to kind of the way that you know that particular kind of folklore as opposed to a folk tale would develop. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we all have uh, more than one influence, right? As 
as any any storyteller does, the, they kind of draw from a, a huge body of experience. Hearing the same story told by different people at different times, it changes a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the version I used, the writer, his name's Italo Calvino. Uh, he drew from an earlier folklorist named Giuseppe Pitre. Uh, so he was just taking stories from other collections and putting them together. And he he put little notes in the back. So he even admitted that he changed the ending because he thought it worked better this way. And he took the ending from a completely different folktale. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So it, that's how, that's how tradition works. It's always um, what we what we say is it's always conservative, but it's also dynamic. Mm-hmm. So the changes the changes are going to happen, and you just kind of have to follow them. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no like at at this point we have no pure original tale. Right. It's, it it grows and changes over time, um, and and I think that it's it's great that you guys were able to um, you know put it in modern times because I feel like people do feel you know at arm's length from a lot of them unless you're really into you know folk tales. <laughs> um, so I know that. Uh, when I spoke to Lori, she was talking about how huge of a learning curve she had um, and that so many things happened that she could have never anticipated. What do you, were there any parts of the process and working with the Odyssey team as they were learning and, and going along? Were there any things that surprised you or that were unexpected? Well, I'll, I'll give this one a, a quick answer. Um, Lori was fantastic. Uh, I thought she she was so helpful. And so that, I think, helped me get around any surprises that were coming up. I mean, the biggest thing was that there were no pictures. Uh, I'd written comic books and I'd, I'd written screenplays. Uh, so that was hard. That was really hard to get around. Um, thinking through, she was always encouraging me to think uh, audibly with, with sound effects and things like that. So that was the big one for me, something I'd never had to work with before. You can't just describe someone going someplace. You have to figure out what that sounds like. Mm-hmm. And if you want to emphasize footsteps or, or, or not, right? how does it work? Uh, and I had some, some nice uh, settings, like the, the ferry across the river, for example, allowed me to play with certain elements, like the difference between a, a rowboat and a, a motorboat. I would echo what, what, what Dan said in terms of the soundscape. Right? You, you realize that... Uh, the sound is as much a character in a radio drama uh, as the actors in the scene because um, that sound transports the listener to whatever world you're trying to create. And I remember, you know, there were times where Laurie would say to me, oh, yeah, the, the sound designer would like to know, you know, uh, uh, what's the traffic like at three o'clock in the morning? Because, you know, the, the junior dwells are, are trying to make off with the tub late at night. And... And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> think of things like that. So I was like, I, I said, there's one car <laughs> that drives down the street. And it's probably somebody who's coming back from a late shift working at a bar. Uh, but it was it was really fascinating to go, oh, OK, the sound becomes a character in the story and it shapes our understanding of what's happening. And to me, it wasn't so much a surprise as it was something that was liberating in in the fact that oh, I don't have to have a narrator step in to tell us, you know, here's a transition point from one to the other. We could just rely on sound in some instances, right? There, I mean, there is a narrator in mine, uh, but they didn't have to do all the heavy lifting through the story. And, and I found that that was really uh, something that was freeing. It was something exciting. And I mean, I, I love, I love 
I, I'm the kind of person who loves to jump in and have everybody not know what they're doing because by not knowing what we're doing, it means we're trying to do something new, right? Because if everybody came into the process and went, oh yeah, this is X, Y, and Z, this is what we need to do, then, you know, there, there's no joy, no no excitement in the creative process. And I think sometimes that translates into the uh, audience's experience. If they go, oh, it's a story we're used to and we know how they're telling it. Um, but this was exciting because you were like, okay, let's 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 try this out. We're we're not quite sure where it's going to land, and sometimes we might land flat on our face, and sometimes we'll land with both feet, and it'll be a perfect landing. But let's at least try. And I think that that's uh, all the credit to the team at Odyssey that they were willing to try and sort of push, you know, their level of comfort, their their comfort zone, to a place where I think real creativity started coming out in in all the podcasts. So. As an iterative process, how many revisions did you start to make after the actors got involved and how much did they contribute to what sort of that, that, you know, sound universe is in the finished pieces? Well, for me, it was really interesting. I mean, I, I, I have a theater background, so, so I'm used to revising. So it's, uh, there, it's, for my creative process, I, I will probably revise my my manuscripts uh, and my plays anywhere from four to six times before I even have something that I'm willing to show people. And I also know because theater is a collaborative medium, even when you think everything's perfect on the page, there's there's an element that you can't predict, right? And that's when you bring in the actors and the way they play a character is going to be different than what you envisioned. I'm not saying that it's a wrong portrayal. It's just a different one. They have a different kind of energy that comes in. And sometimes it sparks your imagination. You go, oh, I can sort of craft this character around that particular actor's voice to really bring up something that I hadn't discovered before. It's, it's like the difference between having something that's two-dimensional and then putting it up on its feet and making it three-dimensional, right? Because because in your mind, in your imagination, anything can work. But when you actually have an actor performing it, you go, oh, there's certain things that you have to consider. And the actors have that skill set that they bring in that helps you start to think about the story in different ways. And I, I found that with the collaborative uh, nature of putting together the podcast, you you really do want to have those actors push you a little bit, right? And you go, oh, you know, let me adjust the voice of this character because I think that will make for a better moment. Um, and then you bring in the sound designers as well and you go, oh, okay, now we can start pushing this stuff around. Um, and, and I think sometimes beginning writers, if, 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 there, if, if there are any beginning writers out there, they, they, they might get precious about their work and you go, you can't change my script. I've written it and I've imagined and envisioned it this way. But I go, I don't have a skill set as an actor. I don't have a skill set as a sound designer. Those people have far better skill set than I do. Why wouldn't I capitalize on their skill sets to make the story better? And the one thing that I always think is I have the confidence in knowing what the core or the premise of the story is. Mm -hmm. The details that add on to it, well, that's something that enhances, but it doesn't change or impair the story. And so as long as you sort of come in with that mentality, you can embrace the collaborative medium and 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 be humble enough to go, I think somebody knows better than me how this moment's going to play, and let me see what they can do. Yeah, I can I can agree with everything Marty's saying. I put it really well too. Uh, that's that's the joy of it in a lot of ways is that collaboration. In in my own work, 
in this particular case, I don't think I had a lot that changed. And I think that was unusual uh, from listening to the, the, you know, the rehearsals and the performances that I got to listen to. And I think that might have been because I'd worked with the directors more. Uh, so there was a lot of overbridge on my end before it got to them. So it was, I thought, pretty smooth. Um, and I, that's what why I would think that's the case. In, in past projects I've worked on, uh, that's always been a huge part of it, is sitting there with the pen, listening to what they're saying. You know, this line doesn't sound right when they say it, and it's probably not them. It's probably the line itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one of my favorite parts of the whole process, is, is figuring all that out. Um, yeah, and and Marty, to your point, I, I think that um, from from my perspective, never having worked on anything like this, I I notice when like actors get changed out, like we there's a remake of a movie, and people lose their minds because they're like it can only be this one because people do the the actors do bring different um, you know pieces to the the part and it changes the overall atmosphere oftentimes. Yeah, it does. It, 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 when, when I, I think about, uh, I'd reference this in my introduction, mom, dad, I'm living with a white girl. Uh, when we did the workshop of the play, there was one particular actor who really embodied the character that I had created. He was playing the, the dad role. And unfortunately for whatever circumstances, when the, the play was produced, he was unavailable. Right. And they put in, uh, somebody else in the role. And, and in fact, he's a, he's an <laughs> incredible actor. Uh, it was, uh, Paul, Paul, Yee, who, if, uh, if, if any of your listeners, uh, know of Kim's convenience, he, he played, uh, the dad in Kim's convenience and he played the dad in mom, dad, I'm living with a white girl. So he's funny. He's brilliant. He was talented. And, uh, he still didn't have the same thing that the original actor had. And that was in my mind, right? There were two different performances, but for me, the original actor, whatever they brought to the table did it for me. And that's not discounting what uh, Paul did in mom, dad, I'm living with a white girl. It was just that it was like a certain performance that I gravitated to over somebody else. And it's in the same way an audience member goes, you can't replace that actor. I mean, I mean who's being replaced right now? I think the controversy is, is over Witcher, right? Henry right. Cavill, right? The, the big letter writing campaign to Netflix going, you can't do this. Um, but we all invest in that character and that actor and what they do. And, and sometimes we sort of impose our own sort of sense of pleasure and joy because of what that actor brings to the table. And we're disappointed when that actor leaves. Yeah. And, and, but you know, sometimes it, it happens and, and you, think, wow, there's the, all these different nuances that I, you know, and, and so it makes it a better experience to be able to, you know, see both. Mm-hmm. Marty, you talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, things for young writers to think about. Based on your experience with this process, with a theater that has, is doing this for the first time and, and the, you know, the, the staff and the director learning how to do this. Are there, is there any advice that either of you have for theaters that want to create something similar, not necessarily in folklore, but if they want to do you know, pieces like this that are not just storytelling, but are actually scripts that they create for podcasts? Hire me. <laughs> no, I, I would say my piece of advice is, is uh, when you're looking for a, a new venture, uh, don't be afraid to fail. I think that's 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 the big takeaway is that if you're trying something new, 
you have to be prepared to go into areas that you're not comfortable with. And sometimes you'll succeed and sometimes you'll fail. But the great thing about the, um, the nature of creation uh, in terms of projects like this is if you do things right, nobody will ever see your failure, right? Like in the first draft, only, only my cat sees my first draft. And maybe, maybe my wife sees the second or third draft, right? But, but the, uh, in this case, Lori didn't see the draft until I was pretty happy with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- leading up to that, I was making all sorts of decisions where I don't know if this is going to work, but let me try it out. And then I'd step back and look at it and go, oh, that, that, that section worked, but this scene didn't. So let me come at it a different way. Uh, so that that would be my advice to anybody who who tries a new project. Don't be afraid to fail. That's good advice. Yeah, having less experience with this, it's it's harder to be that that uh, ad, adviceful. That's not a that's not a word, is it? Uh, <laughs> I, so one thing that I would say is that it's really important to finish things. Uh, so if you have the idea and and you you get started, get to the end at least one at least one draft at least one. Uh, episode at least one of something so you can look at it and see what you what you can do with it after it's done but uh, that's one thing a lot of people I've talked to have not uh, been able to accomplish in that and it's partly that that fear of failure I think is a huge part of it that Marty's talking about there Uh, so finishing things is really important and when you finish things uh, you get people excited about them um, precisely because they're finished. And so they can look at this and they can see that you, you're sincere about it. And, and that's a big deal. The first short film I ever produced, uh, I, I bought the rights to a short story from a writer just to show people that I was sincere. And that was the way that I got 25 people on board working with me on this, this little 10 minute film I was just saying, Hey, I, I'm really going to do this. Uh, and so I could show them a script and I could show them you know, I've got a director and I've got a, you know, a couple of actors and that was really helpful. So, so building a community around it is, is hard. And so it goes back to me for that, to that first thing is that showing people that you, you can actually do something. So finishing. Yeah. <laughs> great. Thank you. That's great advice as well. Um, so anything else that we didn't cover that uh, is a, a burning topic that you guys would like to share? You know, listening to Marty talk about this right now, um, he brought up a really strong economic component to the story of of the multiplying bathtub, which I'm like, fascinated by. Uh, and I'm just wondering, as we listen to more of these as they come out, how big is the economic component going to be? Because uh, that was a huge part of what I was doing. And it wasn't a part of the original folktale, but it is a part of a lot of fairy tales all over the world is, is people who don't have a lot uh, trying to to make their way in the world. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to, to hear some more of these as they get released. And um, I'm curious as to what will come up. And isn't doesn't it kind of speak to a lot of what's going on in the world right now? Because people are very nervous about yes. you know, the economy and, and inflation and all of that. So I think that as we were talking earlier, that when, you know, folktales are, you know, they they change and grow with the the culture that they move into. I think that that's just part of our reality of today. So I don't find that surprising at all. That's true. Yeah, I I, I would agree with all of that. And it'd be interesting. It would to me it would be interesting. What would have happened if uh, Lori and Odyssey Theater approached us, you know, five years ago to to write 
to write these uh, or adapt these folk tales into modern day stories? Like, would we have a different sensibility uh, then, as opposed to you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, when I think a lot of people were uh, uh, quite understandably on edge and thinking about you know what we're seeing now? Like, we were right at the beginning of like a major global shift. Uh, not mm-hmm. just in terms of the pandemic, but in terms of like what it meant uh, economically and, and what it was going to do. And right now we're seeing all the ripple effects of that sort of major event. Um, right. And so oftentimes I think, I think sometimes when you're creating things, you, you sort of pick up on that sort of zeitgeist and, and you, you feel that same kind of um, panic or, or fear and it sort of infuses into into your work, into your stories. Sure, and and you know even above and beyond the economic impacts of the pandemic, people started looking at the world in a different way, and and they're you know fearful. And and when I think about a lot of folklore and, and folk tales, they're brutal in a way that we're kind of not used to. And I think that it becomes more accessible when it's there is this fear out there. Like, am I going to get sick? Is, is it going to be really bad? And is are people I love going to get sick? And so I think that that, that we're, we're at this, you know, very specific moment in time where a lot of those things that make the older folk tales work as in terms of brutality and, and you know, the economics, it, it's just people are in a place to hear it where they wouldn't have been five years ago. Yeah, exactly. I blame yeah. Disney for all that. I blame Disney for taking the things out of uh, classic tales that, that are meant to be cautionary tales to, to warn us so that, that we're prepared for the, Oh, now I've gone down a dark road. Sorry. <laughs> that we're prepared <laughs> it's, it's true, for, for, for a dark and dangerous world. And, and Disney came along and said, Oh no, everything will be fine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. Just don't eat that apple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's true. It's true. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Uh, so where can people find the podcast? Uh, you can find it. Uh, uh, the other path dot CA is the website where uh, you can access the podcasts that are released uh, every couple of weeks. And they're also available if uh, you're uh, downloading podcasts just through uh, Stitcher or um, any of the, the sort of podcast services that you use, you should be able to find it if you look for The Other Path. You can listen to The Other Path podcast in the normal places where podcasts are found, and I'll put a link on the episode page of our website for this episode to take you to Odyssey's place on the internet, where you can find out much more about their theatre work as well. Thanks, as always, to Tracy for chatting with them. We'll close this episode in a moment with an extract from an episode of The Other Path, which will hopefully whet your appetite to listen to more if you haven't already enjoyed it. If you do enjoy the Folklore Podcast, however, and all of the work that we do, then please consider giving us your support over on Patreon. We make extra content over there for all of our supporters at different tiers, and you can also enjoy discounts in our web store and to online lectures, as well as being able to join our private Discord server. We've set the lowest level of support at just a pound a month. Support at any level is really valuable to help us to keep producing the wealth of free content that we have over the last eight years. We'll be back with another episode very soon, as we've already got a lot of content already recorded and ready to bring to you. But in the meantime, here's an extract from Odyssey Theatre's Other Path podcast.
Thanks for listening. See you next time. Welcome to Odyssey Theatre's The Other Path. Should we check for cameras? Three walk-arounds is plenty. Really, Jesse? Golden Girls? I need me some Blanche. Sue me. Okay, throw it in the tub. What was that? I don't know. This place is weird. Just grab the tub. First thing I'm gonna do is give some money to the Humane Society. I was eyeing that leather jacket and sweet king. Oh, yeah. I'd swipe right again if I saw you in that. Set the tub down. I have to lower the back seat. It's gonna fit. I'll make it fit. Oh, shit, duck! You think they saw us? I don't think so. But let's move fast. If they call the cops... Then do what you did when the 7-Eleven clerk caught me with the bag of chips. Cover for me. Uh, oh, sir. Bed Bath & Beyond had a midnight sale. <laughs> Always fast on your feet. Mm. Lift. Join us on theotherpath.ca or wherever you get your podcasts.